Crossover Q is a podcast that openly discusses the Q cultural phenomenon and all its associated conspiracies, ranging from armed political conflict, child abuse, sexual abuse, racism, sexism, and apocalyptic fetishization. Listener discretion is advised. So I've been pretty angry this week. I gotta tell you, I've just been mad at a couple, uh, maybe a few people in my life. And it's a personal thing. I don't need to get into it here. But the point is that I I, want to let you know I've just been so doggone mad. And not just like pouty, grumpy, gotta go to the gym and let off some steam kind of angry. No, I'm talking about deep, seething anger. I like to call it the stew. You know how you just let your stew sit on that fire for a few hours, just keeping it on that rolling boil? And it's longer than you think it should be because you gotta let the heat just sort of penetrate all the carrots and potatoes and break down the beef. It takes a while and that's what you're looking for. This rich, succulent wrath, you know? So I've been stewing in my anger. And for a while, let me tell you, It actually tastes pretty good. It makes you feel strong and righteous. And you think about how bad those people are. The ones who hurt you. Who did obviously terrible things. And of course, you are more righteous in comparison. And here you are. A suffering servant on the side of the angels. A warrior for light whose fuel is righteous indignation. That tastes damn good. For a while, anyway. And then today, it finally got to me, you know, I've been walking around all day, just feeling tired and weak and sick i i I feel kind of like i felt just after i got my vaccine you know lethargic heavy almost like i've become soiled by my wrath and it was then that i remembered about that time i forgot about the stew on the stove have you ever left a stew on the stove too long you know what happens It turns to goop. The liquid, it turns into this burnt, bitter gravy. The carrots almost totally dissolve, like orange mush. The the meat gets stringy, and, and then you're just left with this gross, unappetizing slop. And these days... As we've started to emerge from this pandemic, as we've been through so much 
in this last year as a world, as a civilization, as the church. You know, there's a whole lot of people walking around just covered, head to toes, spirit to souls, in that hot, angry goop. And no one, my friends, no one is goopier than QAnon. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Crossover Q. So here we are, late May, headed into June 2021, and there's still just so much anger out there. Oh, if you thought it would go away once the pandemic started getting a little lighter, boy, way off. (laughs) We got folks who were still upset about the election, still mad about the masks, even though all the mandates are being lifted. I saw a video where a man was willing to pay his daughter $2,000 not to get the vaccine. Almost crying as he spoke to her, his, his, his voice just trembling, dripping with fury. All because he's convinced that some evildoers out there are experimenting on us with gene therapy. And of course, down in Dallas, this Memorial Day weekend, we have the uh, quote, for God and country patriot roundup, unquote. Yeah, that's a Q convention. The organizers, Patriot Voice, they are Q all the way. They, they believe in the stolen election, the vaccine microchip, pedophile Democrats, Satan worshipers, they check all the boxes. And, 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 and let me tell you something. If you really listen to some of these folks that go to these conventions and, and speak on these stages, the Michael Flynn's of the world, the Sidney Powell's, even your own friends and neighbors who believe in this stuff, you, you find quickly, you, you sort of figure out that, that at its heart, QAnon is not merely about believing crazy things about satanic child eaters. It's not merely about microchips and gene therapy and anti-Semitic tropes. It's not just Christian nationalism, as terrible and heretical as that is, and you can listen to episode six if you haven't already. But no, when you listen to these people... When you hear the words they say and see the look in their eyes as they compulsively talk and lecture and rave about this rubbish, what you really see is the anger just simmering in the background, the bubbles of wrath boiling on their foreheads, the the bitter goop of it all just coursing through their veins. 
oh, they say it's not like that at all, that this is a great awakening, this is about expanding your consciousness, and good patriots coming together out of love for their country. Uh, B.S. Look at the posts. Listen to the words. It's about anger. It's about punishment. They might not be able to see that, but you can. It's all about making sure that the right people get what's coming to them. Mike Rains, the QAnon expert we spoke to a couple months ago. Off the air, he said this really fascinating thing. He said that in most religions, you know, the first story, the creation story, the birth of the whole thing starts with the hero. It starts with God for Christians and Jews and Muslims. It starts with, you know, um, the, the main focus of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1-1, or in the Gospel of John for us Christians, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mike makes this great point. The QAnon's foundational creation myth starts with its devil. Who was the first Q post about? Hillary Clinton. Then George Soros. The Rothschilds. Other Jewish celebrities. Barack Obama, Joe Biden. This, by the way, is how you know that, that QAnon is not the same thing as being a Republican or being a conservative, right? I hope you all know that. Because if nothing else, Republicans have a coherent view of the way life should be lived. They have notions about society and how it should work and family life and social institutions. I, I once heard someone try to articulate the two major parties, Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal, in the, the most favorable terms possible. And they said that, that liberalism, Democrats, were all about compassion, that they wanted to help people at their core. They wanted to lift people out of poverty. They wanted to make sure people were healthy, so on and so forth. But then they said... Um, Conservatives are about gratitude at their core. That Republicans, conservative-minded people, are thankful that they live in such a great country with such great institutions. And out of that thanks that they feel, they want to preserve the society as they know it. They want to preserve the memory of those who came before. They want to conserve. It's an act of gratitude. That's a nice thought. But QAnon has none of that. QAnon never moved past its devils. It never moved past punishing the ones who needed to be punished. It never moved past the idea of the wrath of God. 
As I've said many times, I have an extended family member who's into Q. And I think I told you, but it bears repeating. The moment I found out was when I went to her Twitter page and I saw this post. And it was all red and black with a silhouette of Donald Trump's face in the background looking uh, very determined as usual. And over on the left-hand margin, it said something like, it's not because they're socialists. It's not because they hate our country. It's not because yada, 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 whatever it was. It said, it's because the bastards eat children. And I realized for the first time how much anger she must be carrying around. What it must be like to live with that belief in the back or, or even on the forefront of your mind every day that these things are happening, even though you and I know that they're not. These people are tortured by their anger. When you read the emails I get, or you look at the, uh, the QAnon casualty Reddit page and you read these stories from people who've been affected by this, you see very quickly that it's the anger that's destroying these lives. It's, it's the anger that sets them at odds with their friends and families. The anger that keeps them up and scrolling every night that turns them against their kids, their spouses, and even their churches. The sad thing is, is, is most of them don't even know that it's happening. They've been living with this fury for so long, it's now become such a part of their, their media diet and their thought life, their, their conversation topics with their friends, that they don't even realize how much it's stolen from them. <clears throat> you know, my wife has this saying that I've come to really love and appreciate, and I, I try to use it whenever I feel sort of all goopy with anger. She says that anger is a great messenger, but a terrible general. And I think what she means by that is that Anger is what we call a second-order emotion, which is to say that it's a, it's a cover emotion. It's a, an emotion that, that pops up and masks another deeper, more primal emotion that probably makes us feel vulnerable. A good example would be something like if I were to uh, go up to my dog Beowulf while he's working on a bone you know he might growl at me i mean he he wouldn't do that because beowulf just doesn't growl at us no matter what but but if he did it wouldn't simply be because he's just purely mad at me being evil right it would be because he was afraid that i might take his bone away maybe 
he might be worried about having enough to eat that day. Maybe he might be anxious that such a behavior might become uh, some kind of a pattern and that I'll just bully him every day and take his bone. The point is the anger covers the fear. It covers the worry, the anxiety. It's a shield, right? It's a defense mechanism. That's why anger is actually a good messenger. It tells you that there's something going on underneath the surface. That there's some vulnerability that you're trying to protect. Some wound or sore spot that you're trying to shield from someone who might bump it or target it or exploit it. It's like a scout coming up from beyond the front line, telling you that you have a weakness on your left flank and that you better sort it out, right? But if you can't get past that anger, if you can't move past the adrenaline of it or the, the moral superiority that it makes you feel, then the messenger becomes the general. And he starts sending all the soldiers you have to fight for that one weak spot. And he's moving the troops down there, raining down all the gunfire, shifting all the defenses just to cover that one hole. But meanwhile, what you don't realize is that the enemy is just eating up the rest of your position. It's attacking your sleep. It's hitting your relationships. It's moving on your spiritual life. Conquering your peace of mind. And before you know it, the tower has fallen. The enemy has penetrated the gates, raised their flag. And off on the field, there's your anger. Still fighting to cover the hole. This all reminds me of Jonah. Remember that guy? Jonah and the whale, the prophet who was eaten by the whale or the big fish or whatever it was. You remember that. But, but do you remember the story that led to him getting eaten? So if you read the Old Testament up to that point, you have Israel, right? And they're this wee little country surrounded by all these huge empires. And they're just dug in, man. The Israelites um, are like the original patriots, okay? These guys were ultra-nationalists, truly uh, uh, fighting for their civilization, uh, with their self-understanding as being God's chosen people, fighting for their survival in the midst of a hostile world. They were everything that Q folks make themselves out to be online, except they were in it for real life. They were the real deal, so to speak. And then right next door was Assyria. And Assyria was bad news. I mean, imagine uh, communist China, Soviet Union. 
in, say, early 90s Iraq, all rolled into one. That's what the Assyrians were in the Israelite imagination. This empire of evil. Always just at the border, ready to take over, ready to conquer. And they, they actually weren't that far off. I mean, if you know anything about these, these ancient societies, you know, a lot of them worshipped this guy called Moloch, right? And Moloch's big thing was, you guessed it, we're talking about QAnon, it was child sacrifice, okay? And, and I actually had the opportunity to see one of these altars to Moloch in the Holy Land while I was there on a pilgrimage. In my tour group, uh, we were all t talking and chatting as we explored this site, so on and so forth. And the leader pointed to this table and told us that this was an altar upon which one of the most gruesome sins imaginable was performed. The ritualized death of children. And we all fell totally silent. That's a potent thing, right? It stirs up a lot of emotion. And so Jonah, prophet of God, passionate about his own country, equally aghast at the possible murder of children as we are, who has no great love for the Assyrians whatsoever. And so God tells him to go prophesy against Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, is the capital of Assyria. He tells him to go and, and deliver an oracle of doom and destruction over all of Assyria, over the people and the country. And, and, and one would think that this would make Jonah very happy, right? Imagine if Jonah were an American living in 1968. And God told him to go and, and prophesy doom against Moscow. Or in 1943 to go and prophesy against Berlin. That's his enemy. That's where the evil is. Jonah should have been thrilled. He should have relished the opportunity. But the book says he fled. Jonah fled to a place called Tarshish. And what you got to know about Tarshish is that it's the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, okay? It was literally as far as one could go in those days because Tarshish is what we today call Spain. And back then, you're talking, what, 8th century BC? Spain was the edge of the known world. Jonah would rather sail to the ends of the earth than prophesy against Nineveh. But why? Why isn't he happier about it? Why isn't he chomping at the bit? It's a, it's a hanging question as you read the story. And then, of course, we get into the next part. And you know this, right? He gets eaten by the big fish. He's in its belly for three days and then it spits him out. And so finally he relents and goes to Nineveh and says, Hey, 
In 40 days, destruction will come. But then, the craziest thing happens. Something no one would have expected in the ancient world. The, the story skews into this unimaginable direction. And Nineveh repents. They turn from their evil ways, every last one of them. So the story says, even the sheep and the cows, okay? They call a fast, they cover themselves with sackcloth and ashes. This is where we get Ash Wednesday, by the way. Ashes are a symbol of repentance. And so God relents. God doesn't punish them. He, he doesn't rain down fire or hail or anything like that. Nineveh turns from Moloch. They turn from the child sacrifices and all that stuff. And then all is right in the world. Except all is not right with Jonah. Not at all. Jonah is left seething with anger, stewing in bitter, goopy rage. And all of a sudden, it becomes clear why. Jonah chapter 4 verse 2. And Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, I beseech you, Lord, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and relenting from evil. Lord, now take my life from me, for better my death than my life. Did you catch it? Jonah points his finger at God himself and says this. This is exactly why I fled. I knew you would do this. I knew... You would show these despicable, pagan, child-killing savages your compassion. Even though they have innocent blood on their hands, even though they're, they're going to take over our whole country someday, even though they are, for all intents and purposes, the worst people in the whole world, you forgave them. And you made me the instrument of that reconciliation. So just kill me now, okay? What does he say? Better my death than my life. He'd rather commit suicide than see his enemies saved. And then you know what he does? <laughs> the story offers this really interesting detail and you gotta be sharp to find this stuff he goes and he sits under a cacaean tree I didn't know anything about a cacaean tree you know what's interesting about the cacaean tree it's almost totally useless to humans right except for one specific thing the cacaean tree is the tree from which the poison ricin is derived. Jonah sits under and pouts 
and nurses his grudges and stews in his bitterness under the tender shade of poison. As if the poison itself will save him or shelter him or be the means of his salvation. That's what QAnon is. It's finding safety and security. Sitting under a poison tree. It's about feeding yourself with bitter stew. Believing that it's nourishing you. That it's saving the world. So do I believe there's a secret cabal of Democrats eating and raping children, pulling the strings of government and global finance to create a new world order? Of course not, okay? But if I did, I'd be pretty upset. Such that I might try to work for change. I might try to work for justice, for some kind of solution to this problem, right? But all QAnon offers is an excuse to stew under the shade of a poison tree. They use it not as energy to fuel any kind of actual practical change or activism or compassion, they use it to constantly and compulsively reinforce their own anger, hostility, and resentment. And I truly believe it's not their fault. I believe that these are people who were initially moved by compassion when they they heard that that children might be in danger, that, that liberty might be threatened. Um, I think they had the best of intentions, but they've been manipulated. Have you ever actually watched a, a Q video? Or have you seen a Q conference or, or took a look at the, the feeds and the timelines of actual Q posters, right? The ones they call the bakers. These folks will spend hours a day screaming their message out into the ether. And then they'll expose themselves to others who are screaming the exact same thing back to them. And then they give each other high fives. They offer encouragement and a few attaboys. They like and subscribe. And that becomes their life. It becomes their purpose. In many ways, that goopy anger becomes their religion. The way that they're trying to save their souls and their world.
So what do we do? How do we confront this stuff? Well, as usual, okay, as I've said before, I don't have any uh, hard and fast answers for you. But I got a few ideas. I have a few thoughts. And the first thing is something that I've said before, but it bears repeating. We cannot fall into that same trap, okay? And I know the temptation. I've been there. In some ways, this week, with everything I've been angry about, I'm there already. <laughs> but the point is, you can't thin out goopy stew with more goopy stew. You know what I'm saying? You gotta use fresh, clean water. You gotta use peace, okay? You gotta use patience. You gotta use all the stuff that, that, that some of these folks just don't have access to right now to dilute the goop and help them see that there's another way to live. And from some of the folks I've been talking to, some of the non-Q people who are mixed up with, with Q friends and Q family members, some whose marriages are on the rocks or, or, or folks who are scared to death that mom and dad won't get the vaccine and, 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 and they'll catch COVID. Hey, I, I get it. It's tough to keep chill when you're in that moment, right? Especially when they're just going on and on. But that's why you gotta set up some boundaries, okay? If, if you start getting too hot, you gotta walk away. You gotta pull it from the stove. You gotta do what you gotta do to preserve your peace. Because a calm, light, airy you is the only thing that's gonna be able to help them. In ministry, we call this being a non-anxious presence. And as a preacher, it, it, it took me a while to learn this, that sometimes all God needs you to do for someone is just be close to them and not freak out. Just to offer the support of a presence that isn't willing to succumb to anger or fear or anxiety, if for no other reason than simply to show them that it's possible to not freak out in that moment, that it's possible to live a life of peace. Because I ultimately think that's what's going to help a lot of these people. And in, in, in what has helped some of the ones that have gotten out is they realize just how little peace they have, right? So that's why you got to pray. You got to meditate fast. Uh, whatever it is you do, all of which have been sorely absent from my life lately, by the way. But we all got to get back to those places. Right? Where, where we find our peaceful center, okay? Those, those places where we can be quiet enough for long enough to hear that still, small voice of our God telling us that everything is going to be okay. 
And that right there, that right there may be a big part of the solution. I don't know. Just the idea that everything is going to be okay. If someone were to ask me to define the Christian faith in three sentences or, or axioms or lines of a creed, what have you, I think I would say, number one, God is love, right? And number two, God is Trinity, which is to say the very image of God is a diverse community. And number three, I think I would say everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. That despite all the darkness in the world, despite all the violence, despite all the inhumanity, and the anger and the conspiracies and the paranoia, everything is going to be okay. And I have to remember that every time I try to help someone else. Every time I try to minister to someone else, every time I try to get through to someone else who is convinced that everything is not okay and will never be okay. But if I come to that relationship with the same anger and the, the same fear and the same anxiety, we're not going to get anywhere. If I try fighting fire with fire, there's just going to be more fire. And that's why, you know, on some level, we all have to admit that we have our own fears and anxieties. And some of them are just as irrational as QAnon, right? We are all haunted by prophets of doom in the back of our minds telling us that bad things are always just around the corner. But the reason we follow this Jesus guy is because he's the one who comes in and tells us with his words and his life and then shows us with his death and resurrection that in the end no matter what, everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. And when you realize that, when you understand, when you integrate it into a very deep place inside yourself, you can give it to someone else. And how that happens, I think it's a holy mystery. But the point is, you can get to a place where you both realize that there was never anything to be mad about in the first place. Stay tuned, friends. We got a great interview for you today with a great man talking about the role of false prophecy in QAnon. If your QAnon person is a charismatic Christian, if they, they operate in some pretty charismatic evangelical circles or anything like that, you do not want to miss this.
Hello, we are joined today by a very special guest, um, Dr. Dan Hawk. He is the professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Ashland Theological Seminary out here in Ashland, Ohio. Um, he is a fellow member of the clergy with me in the United Methodist Church. He's someone who's written uh, widely on intersections between biblical narrative and the American national mythology. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Derek, and thank you for the invitation to uh, contribute to this important discussion. Oh, absolutely. I, on a personal note, I got to say, um, my wife is very jealous of me right here. You <laughs> are um, a hero of hers. And when I was talking about <laughs> this uh, uh, whole project for this podcast, she said, oh, you got to talk to Dan. He would be the perfect guy. So mm -hmm. I'm thrilled to finally have you on the show. Um, Dan, to, to start things off, you and I, even though we're both United Methodist clergy, um, you have access to a culture that I do not, okay? And that is the charismatic movement within the American church. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you... Uh, sort of came to that movement, a little bit about the history of it and what it is, and how it has managed to get itself at this particular time in history so entangled with conspiracy yeah. theories and the like. Well, that's a tall order, but let's see if I can uh, cut to the chase. So, so charismatic. <laughs> Charismatic Christianity is, is an offshoot of Pentecostalism. And Pe Pentecostalism is a revivalist branch of Christianity that focuses on the, the presence, power, and working of the Holy Spirit uh, in the lives of, of the church and the lives of Christian believers. Um, uh, it's, a, it's characterized by exuberant worship, um, the idea that God speaks directly. Uh, to Christian believers, and uh, that those charismatic gifts of the Spirit that were present in the ministry of Jesus and in the early church uh, are also present in the church today. I'm talking about things uh, like healing, um, speaking in tongues, which we, we encounter in, in uh, the Corinthian correspondence, Book of Acts, uh, a prophecy where God speaks directly to the church. So, um, what happened during the 60s and the 70s is that Pentecostalism spilled over in, into mainline uh, Protestant mm -hmm. Roman Catholic uh, churches. And so, so there, was a, there was something of a, a Holy Spirit revival uh, that began um, uh, in, in these mainline denominations. People were, were uh, experiencing uh, the presence and the power and work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in new ways. Um, and a lot of them were experiencing these gifts of the spirit in operation. And so, so th this, this Pentecostal stream uh, spills over in, into uh, these various denominations and pretty much adapts, fills in, becomes a, a mm -hmm. distinctive expressions 
uh, within those particular faith communities. Um, and then at the same time, uh, during the 70s, there was uh, a, a counterculture movement, mainly among young people, uh, called the Jesus Movement. And the Jesus Movement was uh, a, a kind of a ground up, uh, from the ground up uh, renewal of Christianity that really tried to get back to this, the, the simplicity of the Christian faith over and against uh, the established church. So, and so Jesus people, Jesus hippies, you know, all kinds of names, but mm -hmm. it was, they were, the Jesus movement was, was imbibing of that kind of counterculture uh, impulse uh, on the part of, of young people in that time. And that's actually how I got drawn in uh, to the charismatic renewal. I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, but uh, I just got drawn into the vibrancy, the excitement, uh, the immediacy of just living what we were we were thinking was a New Testament Christianity at the time, and and so you know that movement, the Jesus movement, also greatly influenced by um, by charismatic theology. Just just a lot of really uh, striking experiences for me personally that that demonstrated for me the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that God was alive and living and active and working in powerful ways. Um, within the culture. So that, that's where things started out. And, and so this, um, this phrase charismatic uh, basically becomes an umbrella term that talks about uh, all of these revivalist experiences and focuses in, in mainline churches and then on the, the plethora, plethora of, of churches that are started uh, out of the Jesus movement. A lot of those become mega churches. They develop into networks like the Vineyard or Bethel Church, or uh, more lately, something called the New Apostolic Reformation. So, so that's, that's, the, that's the base of what charismatic Christianity, I think, uh, is, and, and, and how to understand uh, uh, what, what, it, what it entails and what it involves. Um, so that was yeah. So, well, so, so a, sure. um, it's it's obviously grown by leaps and bounds, right? right? Um, that right. we're not we're not really talking about you know uh, how it started, like kids on a beach just kind of <laughs> speaking in tongues anymore. This is something that lives probably in, in almost every major denomination, right? right. Um, and even my wife who comes from the Anglican tradition, which is mm -hmm. about as stuffy <laughs> of a denomination as you can get, right? Um, right? Her church is very charismatic and people do speak in tongues. People do um, receive prophecies. Um, sort of personalized prophecies and right. in those kinds of things. Right. But lately we've seen, uh, maybe not lately, maybe it's been going on, I'm not sure, um, a, a switch from the kinds of, of personal uh, prophetic messages into a, a, a kind of prophecy about 
the nation, in what's happening politically. And that has somehow, in some way, gotten uh, tangled up in these conspiracy theories like QAnon, like right. the stolen election, quote unquote. Uh, where does that connection take place? <laughs> well, um, uh, a funny thing happens on the way to the 2000s. Uh, so it, it, you talk about personal prophecy. So during the 1980s, um, people are, are beginning to receive and, and practice personal prophecy you know, throughout the charismatic movement. And that, that leads to people who uh, are regarded to have a, a strong prophetic anointing, in a sense, being elevated into uh, what's generally called the office of the prophet. So that, that's with reference to Ephesians 4 and the gifts that God gave in terms of offices uh, to the church. So, uh, so you've got the, these prophets who are rising and, and, um, and you're right, this movement is just, is, is growing explosively, you know, over the decades. And so you have these prophets that come to prominence and over the course of the eighties and the nineties and on into the 2000, there's, there, there, there comes to be this common idea that God is restoring uh, a, a, a New Testament church for the new millennium to, to usher in uh, the kingdom of God. And prophets are a big part of that. There are uh, people who take the office of, the, of apostle. And uh, with that kind of move at the beginning of the 2000s, people really start speaking nationally. So there's the idea that apostles and prophets now have a mandate, have a, have a commission. Uh, have, have an anointing not only to speak to individual believers, but to the church. They're giving God's perspective on the church, God's direction to the church, God's declarations. Lately, in the last five or six years, people have gotten really into prophetic declarations, which I'm saying this in the authority of the Holy Spirit, and we're declaring that. And then your job as a listener is to build up your faith and join your faith to the declaration so God can bring it to pass because God needs so God needs that 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 partnership to happen. So what happens is so you've got all of this proliferation of of, of uh, not only churches um, and the eminence of these prophetic and apostolic figures, but they're also really uh, aggressively getting the message out there through conferences, uh, through social media. Um, uh, and through really adept use of, of you know, video. And so uh, what happens is that, that you know, at the, at the present moment, um, you've got lots of people who have a, are generating hundreds of thousands of views um, because of the prophetic messages that they're speaking to the nation or to the election or, uh, and, and for, for people who are in that environment, who have experienced that uncanny uh, power of prophecy, um, you know, there's, there, is a, there is a tendency really to listen and heed what these individuals have to say. So there's, there's almost a feedback loop going on. So the prophets kind of feed into 
um, what people want to hear and people are, are, are valuing what the prophets have to say, believing them to be anointed by God. So if a prophet says that, if you believe the prophet is anointed, then, then um, you, you got to go with your faith, even if it sometimes doesn't make intellectual sense. And um, mm -hmm. so we're, we're seeing where that's going. Um, so yeah, that feedback loop is interesting to me. Um, because now what, what we just saw um, over the last six months were a number of um, what I would call YouTube prophets. Yeah, YouTube prophets. Um, who, who their, their main uh, focus of their ministry is online and they have these followings. And a number of them made these prophecies these declarations about Donald Trump winning the election, some of them had to come back and say, okay, I was obviously wrong. Some have said, well, the prophecy was right. I just misread it, that the prophecy is actually <laughs> about this. Or, um, uh, and now many of them are predicting a return Right. of um donald trump that that is sort of god's will um so on and so forth uh why is this happening and, and what kind of effect does this have on people's lives and in on their faith oh my yeah so so there going back to about 2015, there were a few prophetic figures who, uh, even before the primary season began, said, the Lord revealed to me that Donald Trump is going to be nominated and elected. Uh, and when that primary season gets going, um, you have more and more people, more and more prophetic figures saying, you know, uh, God, is, God is telling me uh, that, that Donald Trump uh, is going to um, you know, is, is, is going to be uh, nominated and elected. And there's a, there are a lot of teachings that kind of get out there and get broadly embraced. So one of the teachings is that uh, uh, Donald Trump has a Cyrus anointing. So Cyrus was a pagan Persian emperor whom, uh, uh, who uh, released the Jews from captivity so that they go, go back and resettle, retake, resettle uh, their homeland and rebuild the temple. Well, uh, the teaching was Donald Trump is a Cyrus. He may not be a Christian. He may not be the most moral person, but God has put an anointing on him uh, because, and this is the reason, God, Donald Trump is God's agent uh, God's means, God's chosen person um, for uh, restoring the Christian heritage of the United States. So it, you know, that's where Christian nationalism and this politic, politicized uh, movement gets going and, and all of these prophets become messengers of, of the, of Kind of the Trump election. Uh, so when when Donald Trump establishes his evangelical advisory board, I mean, they, they so the Trump campaign 
takes note of this really early on. And uh, they, they clearly saw uh, a, a really potentially powerful extensive voting bloc. So they are vigorously and intentionally courting a lot of these charismatic leaders. Um, so that when Trump establishes an evangelical advisory board in 2016, um, the campaign invites a number of these charismatic leaders to join you know, these, these kind of uh, seasoned Christian right-wing activists who've, who've been working for 20 and 30 years. And it gives them access, it gives them stature. And you'll remember, uh, Trump even appointed one of them, Paula White, uh, who has a pastor of a mega church, uh, appoints her the, the chair uh, over this advisory board. So, uh, and, and then the Trump campaign just gives them unrivaled access to the government. So, you know, all throughout the Trump presidency, uh, Trump is doing things specifically that, that fulfill uh, the, the, the agenda for the Christian right, and particularly for those people who believe what the prophets are saying, um, that uh, Donald Trump is God's anointed to restore America. So what does Donald Trump do? Well, he, he moved the embassy back to Jerusalem. That was a big deal. Uh, he uh, appointed uh, three uh, conservative judges so that they can rule, roll, uh, roll back Roe v. Wade. And, and the most important thing he did to, to signal that he was God's anointed was that he started appointing practicing Christians, conservative Christians, into high government offices, places of influence, um, beginning with uh, his, his choice of a vice president. It, so all of these were, it seems to me, calculated ways of uh, signaling this charismatic and Christian nationalist base that, that he was indeed uh, who the prophets said he was, um, and he, he is going to restore that Christian heritage. He's God's anointed. And, and when you've got that kind of steam, that credibility, and you confirm that uh, to people who really are believing what prophets are telling them God has revealed, that's, that's a real hard thing to, to counter in any effective way. Yeah. So um, what happens to some of those folks when um, Donald Trump loses the election, when the prophecies do not come true, um, when the uh, what, what felt like so much sort of divine momentum finally stops um have you seen you know in in your connections to this community um can can you speak about how people are feeling what they're thinking what the the, the community is doing now in the wake of that yeah i think it's 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 hard to generalize um, there are lots of different things going on. Um, and, and these prophetic figures themselves are, as, as you allude, are, are dealing with this in different ways. I mean, if you're a prophet and, and you are saying, 
all of the prophets agree, you know? So you're, you're, you're kind of saying, you know, it's not just me, it's the whole prophetic movement. We all are hearing God say Donald Trump will be reelected. Uh, and then things don't go according to script. Uh, you've got a massive credibility problem. So there, there really aren't that many who have acknowledged uh, that uh, they were in error, uh, that their prophecy, and, and those, those two or three I'm, I'm aware of that have done so have just kind of said, yeah, I got it wrong and here's why. And uh, they, they, now let's, you know, one of them is rebranding and uh, the others are just kind of moving along as though nothing happened, but, but it's a huge credibility hit, isn't it? I mean, so there are all kinds, especially when um, so many of them were mobilizing prayer warriors uh, to, to engage in the spiritual battle and we're encouraging them all throughout the election season to battle spiritually against the forces of darkness and wickedness that were trying to block uh, the completion of what God was doing through Donald Trump. We're assuring them if they prayed, uh, they would have a breakthrough. None of that happened. And so that's where you get uh, post-election, post-November 6th, you've got, uh, you've got these prophets saying, uh, really giving a lot of credence to the stolen election myth. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're doing it in, in the old tried and true ways. Don't, don't, don't believe the, you know, the false, the fake news media. Don't believe what the mainstream uh, press is saying. God's, God's at work. And God's going to expose this wickedness. So all the way through the, the subsequent weeks, um, you have these promises and these benchmarks. Well, you know, uh, God's going to, God's going to uh, release and expose all the wickedness prior to the certification of the electors. And then God's going to do it uh, before the inauguration. And so um, they're, they're now in a really difficult place. Um, and uh, as I said, some of them are just kind of, they're, they're just changing course. <laughs> and some of them are saying, well, uh, we've had a chance, but um, you know, now, you know, just like the prophets of the Old Testament, sometimes people didn't listen to what God said through the prophets. So when they didn't, there was judgment. Um, but my sense is that, yes, on the one hand, there, there are, they're, they're, they're going to lose uh, a, a lot of followers, and they already have. I mean, people are seeing through this. Um, but on the other hand, so you've got that on the one end. On the other end, um, you've got a large core of people that are so invested in what these prophets say, so deep, deeply believe that, that God speaks through them, that they're just going to keep moving forward in faith and 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 really these prophets are going to define their 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 reality their view of, of what's going on and um uh a lot of them are doubling down yeah it seems like there's this move to kind of um just let 
some of these folks do your thinking for you <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, and I'm not trying to be rude here, um, but you know, my concern is always what's happening on the ground level, um, yeah. because those are the emails that I get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are the people that listen to the podcast and reach out to me, folks that have like friends and family members who are at moments of crisis with all of this because so much of their faith has been tied into this. And so when the prophecy fails, um, that shakes the very foundations of their faith sometimes. And there are people who ask me, you know, what do I tell them? How do we sort of interact on a spiritual level now? What is spirituality after yeah. the prophecy fails? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, the, in a sense, the, the basic question is, um, uh, am, am I going to continue to believe? Mm. Or am I just going to realize that um, maybe I've been played? Uh, mm. Or uh, and I mean it's it's always uh, a problem, isn't it? When when someone's faith is so tied up in a person or into a set of beliefs, mm -hmm. um, one's one's Christianity just gets so narrowly uh, focused or in this case, when when somebody's uh, whole sense of uh, the Christian faith just gets focused on uh, one or a number of people uh, who don't who don't come out looking <laughs> all too good when the script doesn't work out. Um, so, in in a way, I mean, I think. I think we've got to be there for those folks who are really um, shaken uh, and who are really rethinking the Christian faith. I mean, that's that's the space where pastors and leaders and friends and family can come in in a uh, in a loving, respectful way and just begin just ask questions, help them to think through you know, help them to think through what they've been doing, even re redefine the nature of faith, because mm. a lot of what these, a lot of what the prophetic uh, movement does is, is, is basically to say, you got to believe the prophet, that's faith. Mm. Um, so for a lot of people, it's not a matter of, um, you know, letting somebody do the thinking for me. It's, it's the idea that I, I am called by God to 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 obey and uh, and put my faith in someone I believe is God's anointed, um, and and with those folks, that's a tough place, and I, it's 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 akin to the kind of thinking that uh, that um, leads people to be so. Uh, loyal to cult figures, and I, I'm not saying in any way, mm -hmm. shape, or form that people who who follow these prophets mm -hmm. are, are are you know are in a cult or are, but that idea 
of, of one's identity and one's faith and one's sense of God being so focused on what this leader says and not challenging that. Um, with those folks, you know, we, we, have to, we have to deal, you know, with, with the recognition of how deeply this, you know, uh, this dependence on these prophets has, has affected their faith. And, and then I think it's just a matter of, of again, just asking questions, uh, engaging in dialogue, knowing what you're going to hear, bringing people back to scripture and to, and, and, uh, and to, to good sound biblical study rather than the kind of cherry picking that goes on mm -hmm. uh, amongst these YouTube prophets. Um, but it's, it's, it's a difficult and slow, I think, process. Yeah. The, uh, the word that keeps coming to my mind, and I, I love this word, even though it has such a negative connotation, is disillusionment. People always use it to say, oh, well, so-and-so is, is, has become so disillusioned. Yeah. And they say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> but actually, we should all be seeking disillusionment all the time to figure mm -hmm. out where our blind spots are, to figure out, you know, where we've put our trust in the wrong idea or the wrong person or that kind of thing. And, and we should celebrate when it happens, you know, but for some of these folks, there is going to be a period of real mourning or grief. Um, so hopefully they have good people around them that can help them through that. How are charismatic Christians like yourself? <laughs> who see through um, this uh, political prophecy, pushing back on some of these ideas, because we know that they are, they are leading to things like QAnon. Um, they are leading right. to very unhealthy conspiracies um, and a lot of cultural and, and social resentment hatred i mean they're deleterious to yep. the human soul yeah so right. so if i'm a charismatic christian who cares deeply about the work of the holy spirit in my life and others how do you push back against something like this um well that's a that, that's a great question um and First of all, it's just by saying no. Uh, I mean, those of us who 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 know the language, who know the thought patterns, um, just in 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 any venue available, uh, particularly on social media. I mean, it, it's it's uh, you know. So so when this stuff about Trump started coming out uh, early on, uh, I started hitting social media and. And I was I was shocked at the at the just the the anger uh, and the outrage that was and, and and that was directed against against me personally, um, which which told me this is this is this in and of itself is really dangerous and that's that's the larger. Uh, but 
so it's been interesting. So I say that to say that, and, and to circle back in, in a bit to the, to, the, uh, to the previous question, what I've noticed is uh, in my social media posts now on these topics, much more openness. Uh, it, it looks like there's, there's a pretty significant group of folks out there that were either you know, outra as outraged and disgusted as I am, um, but but just didn't you know didn't feel like they had a platform, or or didn't want to you know just didn't want to enter it. But now now they're saying you know we we really you know we really need to pick up the pieces here. Uh, we need to find a, a new way in, and, and so I, I really am seeing some folks who are journeying out of that. Uh, I put all my trust in, and now uh, in the prophets, and now I've seen I've seen through them. I'm looking forward to something. So just just number one, by just saying no, and uh, frankly, just doing some good uh, biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation, um, and and pressing. So these people consider themselves as prophets. Well, we have a large corpus in the Old Testament of books who teach us who prophets are, what they do, what kind of message they proclaim, and how to tell when a prophet is actually speaking for God and one when one is not. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and when you stack up what these, what many of these prophets are saying and teaching against scripture it's it's it just does not line up at all um so so getting folks back into scripture uh trying to undercut this idea that um it's the revelations that matter most getting folks back to know that scripture matters most uh and scripture gives us a way uh, of discerning, and we need to be, um, you know, we need to be discerning. That's a fundamental mm -hmm. biblical mandate. When anybody says, thus says the Lord, uh, whether it's a preacher, a prophet, uh, somebody on the street, when anybody says, thus says the Lord, we need to practice discernment. And there hasn't been a lot of discernment and a lot of accountability. So just, just pressing at some of the assumptions that underlie these claims to uh, speak for God or the teachings uh, that are presented as divinely revealed teachings and just showing that they don't, they don't really add up. They don't, I mean, one, one real quick example is the, the, the biblical prophets were fundamentally concerned with establishing justice, justice in the society, systemic justice, caring for the poor, uh, the marginalized. Refugees. Refugees, uh, yeah. speaking, truly speaking uh, against uh, you know, power. Um, and when you really begin taking people through the prophetic books and they begin to see this, it's a lot of times a light bulb goes on. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me when I was in seminary, or no, when I was in college, as a matter of fact, studying the Bible in college, was um, we learned that, that prophets were not unique to Israel in the ancient world, right? Like, everybody had their prophets, and so on and so forth. 
But the thing that was fairly unique to Israel was the fact that their prophets, more often than not, were critical of those who were in authority, whereas so many other prophets were always just trying to get on the good side of whoever um, the the person in power happened to be. And um, I, I apply that lesson to what I see today, regardless of who's president. It feels like the prophetic voice is, is about um, uh, speaking truth to power, calling for justice, calling for um, God's kingdom, and pointing out all the ways that, that we have not yet reached that benchmark as a people. Yeah, right. And so, so uh, there were court prophets mm. in the ancient Near East and in Israel. And the job of the court prophet was basically to, um, to toe the, toe the line of the king and give it divine legitimization. Mm. Um, and that's what we've got today. We've got court prophets. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's kind of an interesting way to, to, to help people to think about that because, you know, a, a lot of the, one of the arguments that these prophets, these YouTube prophets made uh, prior to the election was we all agree. Uh, all the prophets agree that Donald Trump will be reelected. Um, mm. Well, when all the prophets agree on something in the Old Testament, that's usually not a sign that they're speaking mm -hmm. from God. It's usually a sign that they're they're kind of articulating the royal line, and the the other thing about the prophets is that you know they speak an unpopular uh, they speak an unpopular message that that really challenges the status quo, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it's 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 so. So you, you, if one is, is, is inclined to these kinds of templates, as, as the prophets are, just, just talking about the role of prophets as court advisors uh, is, uh, would be enough, I think, in and of itself to cause anyone to begin to, to, to look, uh, to take a second look at, at what they're saying in terms of promoting uh, a particular political apparatus. Mm. So given all of this, um, given the conspiracy theories, given the way we've seen Christianity um, uh, get infected with conspiracy theories and Christian nationalism, QAnon, you know, the big statistic, 27% of all evangelicals say QAnon is, is mostly yeah. true or entirely true, which is just a, such a horrifying number. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you feel about the future of the charismatic movement and of American Christianity in general? Uh, um, actually mixed. So, um, the thing I'm really concerned about, on, on the one hand, the thing that uh, really I find heartbreaking is that 
uh, not, not just charismatics, but the whole Christian right, I think has done extraordinary damage to, to Christian witness in the United States, uh, and particularly among millennials and Gen Zs. I mean, um, you know, there's been such angry moral certitude. Um, and, you know, our younger generations have seen that. And I can't blame them for saying, you know, I don't want to be a part of that. So um, I, that, that is a big concern. Um, on the other hand, I, I remain hopeful on this side of, of the cross uh, and remembering the resurrection. I'm also seeing some signs of, of, of disaffection. So you spoke of disillusion. I'm seeing disaffection. I'm seeing people who are just fed up with, with the fusion of uh, conservative Christianity, for want of a better word, or just Christianity itself with uh, politi uh, conservative political ideologies. Uh, I see people who are coming out of uh, in, in that place of saying, uh, I just, I just realized that this, this whole charismatic infatuation with prophets is is just not good. But I don't know where to go. So I, I'm seeing, um, and I'm, I'm in, in various ways um, signs that that there are people of of authentic Christian faith who are charismatic who. Who are evangelical, who are who are truly seeking an authentic Christianity that looks like Jesus, and um, you know, so that that is the hope to the heartbreak. I, um, however many of them there are, uh, how many, however many of us there are that that are looking for a Christianity that is 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 rooted in in relational unity rather than ideological unity. Um, I think there's some real hope. We, we, may, we may endure a lot of really severe pruning, but pruning will bring new life. So mixed but hopeful, I guess. I love that line. Um, relational unity as opposed to ideological unity. That is amazing to me. And that's something we're losing um, in large part but I hope we can get back to that. Hey, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. Um, if you really appreciated what Dan had to say and you want to um, get some more of his insight, he just had a book published in 2019 called Violence of the Biblical God. And before that, more germane to our topic here today, uh, he has a book called Joshua in 3D, which is all about um, comparing sort of the, the conquering mentality of Joshua to uh, the American nationalist narrative we're all struggling through right now. Uh, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Derek, for inviting me. And uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. And I so appreciate what you're doing. Uh, just just uh, with these podcasts, it's it's just so important, and and I am appreciative both of your podcast and of the invitation. Thank you. Thanks.
All right, friends. Hey, I want to take a minute and apologize. I'm sorry that it's been so long since my last episode here. Hey, things have been busy in U-Town. We got worshipers in the building now. Um, so that has been requiring my attention as of late. But, you know, actually just today I saw where there was yet another new survey out. This one by uh, the Public Religion Research Institute. And guess what? It's not great news. 15% of all Americans, not just white evangelicals, you know, it's 15% of everybody believes that the levers of power are controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. <laughs> and the exact same amount said that, quote, American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to depose them. 20% said that uh, they thought a biblical-scale storm would restore rightful leaders. Who boy. I know we're starting to uh, pull ourselves out of the pandemic. We're starting to shed the masks. We're hugging on mom and dad. And the, the, the news on TV isn't quite as bleak as it has been. But let me tell you, QAnon is live and kicking. So that's why I wanted to get this show out to you today. Why I said it's got to be tonight, okay? And it's also why... I actually want to ask you a favor. So I'm asking, please, please, please share Crossover Q. Whether it's this episode or your favorite episode or whatever, share Crossover Q on your social media. Now, you know I'm not looking for money here. I've not monetized this. I don't think you heard any commercials here. If you do, send me a message at crossoverq at yahoo.com because there shouldn't be any commercials, no money coming in, no revenue streams for this bad boy or anything like that. I'm just a local preacher who believes that this heresy is the greatest single threat that our churches have seen in our lifetime. And I would say it is a, a threat to our society. I've talked to people in England and in Germany who would tell you that it is a threat to our entire civilization, okay? So we gotta get this word out. We gotta get folks talking. We gotta get preachers to start talking about it. So share this out there uh, at your preacher, at your Bible study teacher um, whatever you gotta do push it and that's all I'm asking so if you want to do your part, share us on Facebook, Twitter whatever social media you use and let people know that you found some grace here let people know that if they're struggling with this stuff too they might find some healing in this podcast. With that, I bid you 
to take a moment. Take some time and wash out some of that goop. Take a few deep breaths. Wherever you are, invite the Holy Spirit to cleanse your heart and your mind, to take away your fears and anxieties about tomorrow and your regrets from yesterday. Rather than stew in your anger, take a breath and bask in God's grace. And now, receive this benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you now and always.